Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon. Uh, this is Dr. Lawrence Simon. And today on the stories we live by, I'd like to discuss some of the reasons, I think, I'm not sure of any of this stuff, that there's so little protest, so little outrage, so little dissension, and so little rebellion, uh, given the political and economic situation in the country. And um, I want to start with a little history, because I'm an old guy, and uh, I was a relatively young guy when the Vietnamese War broke out, and very similar in, in many ways uh, to the, the, the thing in Iraq. Of course, we hadn't been attacked uh, in much the same dramatic way. Uh, the war was really started uh, with a police, supposed police action. Oh, it's a long story. I won't get into it. But uh, that war became unpopular fairly quickly. And as years went by, and it was seven long years that we were involved in that quagmire while we economically bled and, and uh, sent up our best people to, uh, into the carnage and uh, defoliated and nearly destroyed an entire country, more than one, uh, while we were lied to continually, um, which is something, again, the governments seem to be able to do really well. Uh, I guess they justify it. But the protests began uh, within a couple of years. And in 1970, when a group of students, protesting students at Kent State University, were fired upon by young, inexperienced National Guardsmen who themselves were shitting a brick at what was going on. It's not excusing it, but it, you know that's the worst part of the context. Um, most of the universities in, in the United States were shut down by student protesters. And there was wide, broad protesting, and there were marches. Uh, and it was a time of tremendous ferment, and many people thought America would come apart. And it didn't. And, um, you know, we continued to be lied to, but it was clear that the war would have to be wound down somehow uh, because it, people had lost faith in it. And it wasn't just polls that showed our government that there was no faith in them and their judgment and in the war, uh, but um, massive protests. People expressed their outrage. And something happened soon after that. And everybody seemed to have gone to sleep. And we're in a situation now where I don't know anybody. And a lot of the people I know voted Republican, voted for George Bush at least once, uh, who see this government as anything but a bunch of lying bandits who have mismanaged the economy, uh, at least for most people, and um, who are prosecuting a war that's unjust, unfair, illegal probably, and there's no protest. There isn't even an opposition party. The Democrats seem to have pulled up a blanket and somehow, somehow, for whatever the reason, um, really are bland. They're mild. They don't rally people. Where are the students? And I want to discuss some of the things I think have happened in this country and that have led to the students and everybody else really just acting as if the war isn't happening, or as unhappy as they might be as individuals not protesting.
and not really uh, uh, sending a message that says, I'm unhappy, I'm mad, I don't want to take it anymore. Uh, I don't see that. So, what uh, I think I want to talk about, and again, I have to talk a little bit about some philosophy, and I apologize, and I think that's part of the problem. I don't think that a lot of people think anymore. I think the thought processes have shut down. I think that uh, particularly I was watching CBS, and they were talking about the millennium generation, uh, who are in love with their uh, um, who are in love with their computers and their cell phones and their iPods, and the most exciting thing in the world is a new movie or a new electronic gadget. And I'm up for electronic gadgets. I certainly couldn't do this show without electronic gadgets. So I enjoy that. It's transformed my life. But I don't think they think much politically. I think they've withdrawn. I think that they have been raised to think of themselves very differently than the students thought of themselves 30 years ago. And and how do they think of themselves differently? I think that most people today feel it's all hopeless and it's helpless. I constantly have people saying to me, I can't imagine what's going to happen to my children and my grandchildren. I can't imagine it. There's a feeling that democracy is dying and America is winding down. And I used to feel that was going to happen much faster than it seems to be happening now because I really do feel that I underestimate sometimes the resilience of people or just how strong some of our political, legal, uh, uh, moral, social institutions are. On the other hand, I do believe bad things are happening. I think the stories we tell and have been told are changing. And the philosopher who I want to talk a little bit about was a fellow by the name of Sir Karl Popper, P-O-P-P-E-R. And he was a philosopher of science, uh, much beloved in scientific circles and much admired in England where they made him a knight. And the two books he wrote that made him famous, among others, were The Open Society and Its Enemies, And he points out uh, that certain types of philosophies are the enemies of a democracy. And the heart of a democracy is diversity and debate and people who argue intelligently against each other in terms of what's logical, what's correct, what's factual. Um, And the enemies who, who would undermine that and he talks about uh, Plato and Marx and Hegel in his, in his two books, send a message that says as follows, what is happening in your life to you as a person and as a society is both inevitable, it has to happen, and created by powers that are way beyond anything you can control. Okay? So the message that you get that undermines debate, undermines uh, 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 protest, undermines action itself is a message that says you are helpless because you are in throw of forces that are beyond your control and essentially you are unable to do this. Okay? He calls this essentialism, and he calls it historicism. 
And essentialism says you are simply not strong enough. You're defective in some way. So you're unable to mount the kind of sustained energy that would take to go up against dictators, to go up against governments, to go up against teachers, to go up against the mayor, to go up against society. Whether as an individual or as a group, you're defective, you can't do it. And the other thing that says is that one of the reasons you're defective is that this has all been brought about by forces that are beyond your control. They're too great for you. And I see this and hear this from people all the time. Where did this come from? Well, if you've been listening to my show, you know that part of it has come, a big piece of it has come, from psychiatry, and which I include clinical psychology, social work, in which if you study psychology, you're told that basically the model of a human being is a rat or a pigeon, and the forces of culture and society condition you. Or, more recently, you are told that your unhappiness has nothing to do with the life you're living, right? that you have a brain damage, a chemical imbalance, you're genetically impaired, and that's the source of your unhappiness. And therefore, there's nothing you can do about it. You're defective. And once you're told you're defective, once you accept that you're defective, that's it. The game is over. The second thing, of course, is if you're in the throes of your genetics, if your early history has determined your personality, that was a big one with Freud that's still around in many ways today, you've been shaped. History is going to roll over you, your personal history, your culture, nothing can be fought against. Therefore, you've got to do something else when you're unhappy. And of course, what do we do? In our society, drugs and alcohol are very, very big. Uh, gadgets are wonderful. Let's go shopping and buy another gadget, whether we can afford it or not. We'll buy the gadget. We'll immerse ourselves in moronic TV shows. Uh, we'll just simply shut down any awareness or idea of what the world around us is like or what it's supposed to be doing or what our responsibility is as a citizen. Even before I retired, I used to talk to my students about uh, what would they die for. And many of them said they would die for their families. They would fight for their families. Uh, on the other hand, if I said, what about your country? Well, that was ridiculous. They're not going to uh, fight for their country. They're not going to fight because there's no point to it. They're not part of it. They've withdrawn. That's, that's a big piece of this. There's no protest. If you don't feel connected to the political and economic hardships uh, that you're involved in, if you look down, if you look away. And so I think part of this is, is generational, different than 30, 40 years ago, in which people, I think, did feel outrage and said, I can do something about this. Now it's take your Prozac, take your pill, take a drink, put your feet up, go on vacation. Another piece of this, I think, this, this idea that you're helpless, again is generational, and I think it's come from what I call the social work mentality. And I want to tell you a nice story, because that's what the show is about, stories. When I was 18 years old, 
I started working in summer camps. I loved going to working in summer camps. Uh, there was a chance of uh, getting laid in the woods. Uh, I like working with kids. It was cursor to my becoming a psychologist. And um, the camps I tended to go to were social work-run camps, Jewish Federation camps. And they were run by social workers. And one day in this camp, um, we were going to uh, have a lesson before the kids came up, a lesson on how to teach art. And they brought in some kid, the guinea pig kid, and he was taught with another kid. And they were taught to draw. And it was very clear that one of these kids really had art. He was able. He could draw absolutely beautifully. And the other kid was like me. Uh, <laughs> don't give up your day job to be an artist. It ain't going to happen. Um, and so this went on for an hour. And as it went on, the kid who wasn't able to draw was constantly told by the social worker how fabulous he was. Oh, your efforts are wonderful. That is a terrific picture. And the kid who was really talented, he was ignored. And I kept getting confused by this. When we, we, we left the room, I heard one kid say to the other one, the kid who was talented, hey, don't feel bad. Uh, the kid who was not talented, I'm sorry, the kid who was not talented, said to the talented kid, don't feel bad. You draw much better than me. That woman is full of shit. And I got hysterical. But later we had our discussion that we don't want anybody's feelings to be hurt. All right? This is the philosophy. So if one child sees another child uh, do really well, and he can't do well, he will feel badly. And therefore, we should try to make things even between them. We should make the kid who might feel badly because he can't do as well, and we should tell him how fantastic he is, how wonderful he is, and build up his ego. And this, I think, has become one of the major philosophies in the raising of children and in our schools. Uh, I know what has happened in terms of grades. We don't want anybody's feelings to be hurt, and so everybody gets a B or an A. Even now, B's are no good. It has to be an A. And by the time these kids get out of grade school, they have been told how proud everybody is. And, okay, I, I got a package just delivered to me at my door, so uh, you'll excuse me. They went away. Um, I was told, we're told how proud they are of them. They're wonderful. They're fabulous. They are the very best that's ever lived, and they haven't done anything for it. Uh, in school, this, this social work philosophy mushroomed, and it was believed that children would not learn to read unless they had high self-esteem. And after a while, I began to listen, because we had a, a, a teaching prep program at my college, and this became the philosophy. Children can't learn unless they have high self-esteem. I came to hate the word high self-esteem in that context. I want everybody to have high self-esteem. But maybe the reason a kid learns to read is because he feels a responsibility to learn to read. He believes he can. 
And if he can, and we present him with situations and an opportunity to learn, he'll learn. And if he doesn't learn, we could look for the reasons he doesn't learn. And maybe if he learns to read, and if you've ever seen a kid learn to do something really, really well, his self-esteem soars. Otherwise, he starts to become confused, and he thinks, I'm either being shit on here, I'm either being lied to here, I'm being conned, or else, gee, maybe I am really as great as anybody else, no matter how good I think they do things. I recently had a, a discussion with somebody about a tennis game, and he said, I don't think I should really play tennis because I'm not as good as some of the other people. I said, well, you turn on the television set, and you look at the professionals, and none of us are ever going to be as good as these people. That's why they're professionals. They're your model. They're the ones you aspire to. But you have to believe that, A, it's important to you, and believe you can aspire, and that there's a period of development, a period of growth. But not if you've been told you're really as good as them, and you've been told you're good over and over again, where you're being conned so that deep down you really think you are a piece of shit and you can't learn, you see. And so what begins to happen is that you really do believe that you are inferior. And therefore, there's no effort. So on the one hand, I'm inferior, so there is no effort to be made. On the other, everybody tells me how Therefore, I'm so great, I don't have to make the effort. I think this, there's much of this that is now involved in fair country, our, our land. I think that we have conned ourselves into thinking that there's no difference between merit and non-merit. I think everybody is the same. I remember when, what was his name who couldn't spell potato, who ran for vice president? And people began to say, it's time we had somebody in office who wasn't that smart like the rest of us. What kind of shit is that? How many of you, how many of you would like to have the number of the worst doctor, the stupidest, most inadequate doctor in the entire world to make an appointment with later today or when you get sick? What is it that we can't recognize real merit? The President of the United States, whatever else he is, and I think he's cunning, I can't imagine where his mind is. Is there a mind? Did he fry his brain on drugs and alcohol? Let's give him a chance to be president. How about smart people? How about really able people? We certainly still worship athletes. A-Rod is worshipped. Basketball players and football players. Brady, for example, who, who the quarterback, worshipped. Right? But the rest of us, what are we told? We're defective, but we're perfect the way we are, how wonderful we are. And at the same time, don't bother trying because your genes are defective, your mind is defective. You can't do this. Watch television for someone else who can do it, but don't really try. And I think, and I do believe, I can't prove this, can't prove any of this stuff, that one of the reasons there is no protest now is that people are kind of sick at heart about themselves. They feel overwhelmed by this. I want one other aspect of this. I went to a meeting uh, uh, down here, and they were discussing the uh, terrorists, the Muslim terrorists, the jihadists. 
And if you listen to these people talk, the terror that these people could wipe out America. What kind of nonsense? They're living in caves. They don't have an airplane. Can they do damage to us? You better believe they can do damage to us. But what I really think the damage is, I think the real damage is that um, we don't believe in our own selves any longer. We've somehow undermined our own self. See, somebody wrote, I think dissension is partly, by the way, dissension, is, uh, never mind, is partly due to our government being so far removed from the layperson. How can a pauper communicate with a king? You're talking exactly what I'm saying. A pauper can look in the eyes of the king and tell the king, I am your equal. But the pauper doesn't, because what the pauper has been convinced is that he is inferior to the king. The king looks down on him, and it, you have to say, Your Majesty. What do you mean, Your Majesty? There ain't nobody who's Your Majesty. We are equal. And the fact that somebody is born or has a, into a higher economic situation, or somebody has gone to a school we didn't go to, doesn't take away from our innate potential to grow. And once you lose that, that feeling, that you can grow, that you can develop, that you can become something. And by the way, I don't believe the bullshit. Any of us can become anything we want. Uh, I'm not going to grow wings and fly. And I'm struggling down here in my late 60s to play an adequate game of tennis, and maybe I'll have a net game if I work at it long enough and don't drop dead of a heart attack. I can improve, but I'm certainly never going to beat the pro down here who's been playing for 40 years and played professionally. Uh, uh, in, in tournaments like Wimbledon and, and the U.S. Open. Right. It doesn't matter. I don't have to be who he is. On the other hand, I have to believe that I have the capacity to grow and change and develop. Senators don't even understand the whole realm of the hardship of the working force. You're damn right about that. But I don't think that the working force understands the senators. And I think that, that this, this constant business of I'm inferior to these people. We let they, we're getting the government right now. We deserve. First of all, talk about withdrawal. Only 21% of the public is voting. And the part of the public that's voting the least are college students. Right? The best and the brightest don't bother to vote. What's going on? It's not their business. Right? It's all about me, me, me because I have to live up to some kind of crazy potential that I know deep down I can't. Get okay, quick story before I have to go. I have a little time. I discovered some time ago that more and more kids were being told they're learning disabled. What a horrible thing. I once said to a teacher uh, uh, who was teaching a class on education, I said, is it possible that the student isn't learning disabled, but the teacher is teaching disabled? And she looked at me as if I just got off a spaceship from Mars. And she thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. And she said, you know what? Maybe you're right. Maybe someone else could teach this kid or these kids better than we. But we call them learning disabled. And this has come under the, the uh, Americans for Disability Act, the Disability Act. So you have to be kind to kids who have been labeled learning disabled. Well, while I was still a practicing psychologist, people would come to me and offer me thousands of dollars 
if I would test their adolescent students and come up with a learning disabilities diagnosis. Why? Give them more time on the SATs, more time on the MCATs. It would give them a, a, a leg up. And I would look at these parents and i say, do you know the message you're sending your child? You understand the implications of this, the long-term implications of this, and I absolutely wouldn't do it. Although, many of my colleagues had no problem finding evidence on an intelligence test or, or whatever test that they have. Woodcock-Johnson was one I used to use. The learning disability, if you go look for the mental illness, you're going to find it. Horrible thing. Students who would come up to me and say, can you give me extra time on a test? I'm disabled. And I would talk to them, and the disability, it wasn't real disability. It was a disability in their head. They were disabled by an attitude. They were disabled by the belief that history is passing them by, that they are nothing, that they are nobody, even as they were being told how wonderful they were and getting B's and A's. Guest, it's calling dumbing down America. Oh, you better believe it. One of the great stories I read was written by 1943 by a guy named C.M. Cornbluff, who which is a wonderful science fiction writer, and it was called The Marching Morons. And in this story, for reasons that he doesn't discuss, the average American IQ drops to 43. And the government, whose IQ is not much higher, can't figure out what to do about this. So they have all these space rockets that they've built, and they offer people a ride into space. The only thing is that the people who get on the spaceship don't ask when they're coming back, because they're not coming back. So they're shot off into space, and the excess population is dealt with that way. And I sometimes feel that that's happening, but it really isn't happening. People aren't becoming dumber. Genetically, that is impossible. People are becoming depressed. People are going to sleep. People are feeling that this country is no longer under their control, that people aren't responsive. And I think that's so. However, I keep waiting for one school, another school, for the professors to stand up and say, let's march. Let's go out into the streets. Let's hold up placards. Let's all vote. And if we have to vote our conscience and just vote against whoever is in office. I can't imagine that could make that much more of a mess. I don't know about you, but I think that's part of the state that we're in, and I think it's reversible because, again, I'm an old guy, and 30 years ago it wasn't this way. There were protests. There were people in the street. There was loud debate. Of course, right now, no debate exists. You're called a fascist, you're called a communist, you're called a liberal. We insult each other, we blame each other, but reason debate? I don't hear very much of that. Uh, thinking is sort of out. It's the commercial for Nike. Just do it. Uh, let's get it done. Yes, people are feeling powerless. I have two minutes. Anybody want to call in? I'd love to talk to somebody on the air. Uh, I have a number of guests. It's really nice. And uh, Well, anyway, it's been a pleasure, as it always is. Next week, I'm going up to New York. Uh, I don't even have a winter coat. 
those of us who live in Florida can't even imagine. My son calls me and he says, Dad, it's 35 degrees and there's a strong wind. And I'm looking outside and there's a mild breeze and it's 75 degrees and the sun is shining. Because down here in Florida, November and April are really the two nicest months of the entire year. And, uh, uh, well, we'll see what happens. I'm going to go up north and uh, get the pulse of what going to do a show up there next week or if I'm not going to do a show. Uh, well, we'll wait and see. And anyway, I want to say goodbye, and uh, I hope uh, everybody has a happy Thanksgiving. If I don't wish it to you next week, I still have to come up with an idea for a show next week. And uh, take care and feel powerful. Goodbye.